that sometimes I forget to do. There we go. Okay, do you see that photo on the screen of a much younger version of Laura? That photo was taken over 30 years ago, actually about 31 almost to be exact. We were, that's my husband Kevin, we were in the church parlor at Mount Carmel Baptist Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and our church family had just given us a lovely baby shower to welcome our firstborn child who would be arriving in just a few weeks. And Everything was yellow and green because I didn't want to be to know what it was going to be. I wanted to be surprised. And when Kyle arrived, uh, it was with great anticipation. Our son Kyle was the first grandchild on both sides of the family. I remember my friend Jamie saying how sorry she felt for Kyle because he was the firstborn of two firstborns. So um, he was the first grandchild with both sets of parents, and they both sets of parents were so excited to become grands. And my grandparents were also excited to become greats. My mom's parents were the only set of grandparents that he was the first great-grandchild for. So my mom, Alvi, was over the moon about being a great-grandma. Her oldest granddaughter, her oldest daughter, her oldest granddaughter, and then he was going to be the firstborn. So, but my mom, Alvi, always, always, always referred to my condition as expecting. She never, ever, ever said the word pregnant. <laughs> Never, ever. It was always she's expecting. And so at that time, and even now, it made me giggle. But all these years later, I find that I like saying expecting. You know, when you say pregnant, it just sounds like biology or anatomy and physiology. It's just clinical. It's just medical. It's just physical. But expecting, when we use the word expecting, it seems to tap into the heart. Our emotions are engaged. It, it sort of communicates that we're anticipating a future event with hope and promise and joy and life. So this body will never, ever be expecting again. Uh, as far as childbearing is concerned, I'm now in the grand state myself. But every single one of us, no matter what your age here today, if your identity is in Jesus Christ, then you are expecting, and I am expecting. We live anticipating the future return of our Lord Jesus Christ with joyful, confident hope. Do we spend much time thinking about that in our day-to-day -day lives? Do we ponder that reality? Do we really believe that he's coming back? But those who lived in Old Testament times lived expecting the coming of the promised Messiah the first time, the first coming of Jesus. And, and we just celebrated Christmas, the coming of the one promise. Jesus, we know, stepped down from heaven. He put on flesh. He became one of us. He took the punishment we deserve. He died a sinner's death on Calvary. But three days later, three days later, he conquered sin and death by his resurrection. He proved his power, that he is more powerful than sin and death. So today, today we live in an in-between time. The time in between his ascension to heaven, his first coming and his ascension into heaven, but, but anticipating that future time of his coming back, his second coming. We live in between. So in a sense, then, we are all expecting. We're all expecting. We're all longing and believing and knowing that he will return, that he is coming back. So in this in-between time of waiting, 
He left us his word. He left us his teachings to guide us and grow us and change us and transform us and show us how to live during this time of waiting and expecting. And as he walked among us, he often used parables as a teaching tool for his students then and by extension for us today. Parables are just a practical method that employs natural, ordinary facets of life to unpack deeper spiritual truth. The word parable is actually the combination of two Greek words. Whoops, I'm going to the wrong direction. Let me try to get a handle on this. Whoops, going the wrong way. There we go. The word parable is a combination of two Greek words. The word para, which means alongside, and bole, which means throwing. And so when you put those two together, it's sort of throwing alongside this spiritual truth by this practical application, this normal, ordinary story from everyday life. So what Jesus did is he used this teaching method called parable as a way to take an ordinary, everyday, well-known event or life experience that all of his listeners would be familiar with and lay that alongside a deeper spiritual truth to make it understandable and relatable to his listeners. Now, a parable is more drawn out, it's deeper, it's longer, uh, has more depth than, than some literary devices we're familiar with. Maybe you were an English major and you say, well, isn't it like a metaphor or a simile or an analogy? It's so much more than that. And it's never a myth. It's always based on a real, actual, believable story. So in that sense, a parable was used to reveal spiritual truth. But Jesus also used parables for a second reason, not just to reveal, but also to conceal. The choice of Jesus, when he began speaking in parables and there was a shift in his teaching method and he began to employ that method, it was a blessing to his listeners, but it was also a judgment to those who had rejected him. When his disciples asked him in Matthew 13, 10, why do you speak to the people in parables he answered them in Matthew 13, verses 11 and 12. And this is a quote from Jesus. Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. So how very blessed we are as women of God today to have his parables recorded in scripture for us, to read them and study and learn from them, along with all the other truth in the Bible, to help us understand and remember the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because this elongated story somehow helps us hook into that truth and grab it and remember it and certainly live it. So as we live in this time of in-between, this time of expecting his return, we study his word, and in these next few weeks together specifically, we're going to study some of the parables that our Lord Jesus Christ used when he walked among us in the first century. So we're going to, and interestingly, the first three that we're going to study all address and deal with the last days. So this week, we looked at the faithful servant. And that text is found in Matthew 24, 36 to 51. Now, there are many of you here that are studying with us for the first time. So I want to introduce you, first of all, to a little tradition that we have. And that is that we stand each week as we read the text. And I thought I might just interject here a little bit about why we do that. Because that may be a foreign or a new idea to you. 
Well, we stand, as the text is read, first and foremost to honor the word of God. Back in the book of Nehemiah, it records that when the exiles had returned to Jerusalem, they'd all gathered in the square, and Ezra, who's described as both priest and scribe, as he stood with the book of the law and opened it up to read it aloud to the people, the scripture tells us in Nehemiah 8.5 that all the people stood up. It was just honor and reverence for the word of God. And so when I came across that several years ago, I, it, it just touched my heart. To, I, I want to respect and revere God's word as holy. It's why we call it the holy scriptures. It's different from any other book or any other reading that we would have. Now, it's also a reminder to us that God himself spoke these words, so it's as if God is speaking to us as he is. And by standing, then it, we're acknowledging that God himself is the source of all truth. We don't stand when we read the newspaper or, or anything else. We stand to honor the word of God to receive it. And so we do our best to learn from one another here. But God is the absolute authority. N not what I say, not what your sister in Christ says or your small group leader. God, his scripture, is our absolute authority. And then I think it's just helpful for us before we launch in to, to the lecture just to remind you what the scripture says. So you can fact check me. You know, you can hear, okay, this is what God's word says. How does what she's saying line up with that? And you have my permission to call me on it if I'm out of line. So I, I want to be hidden by the cross. I want to make sure that when I step up to speak that I am prayed up and prepared as best as I can. But yet at the same time, I am a human being and only the Lord Jesus, only God Almighty himself is perfect. And there are, there are things in here that we know that create division or discussion or um, just disagreements among even the body of Christ. And so we want to, on all those things that are essentials, find agreement, release grace and love to one another, to respectfully disagree, to even handle the things that where we see through a glass dimly, to, to hold those things uh, and, and to share truth in a way that honors God, that is not hateful or divisive, even when we disagree. So anyway, having said all that, ladies, would you please stand with me in honor of God's holy word? I'm going to be reading from Matthew 24, verses 36 to 51. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, not the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then? is the faithful servant and wise faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns i tell you the truth he will put him in charge of all his possessions but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself my master's staying away a long time and he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards 
The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Ladies, thank you for standing in honor of God's word. You may be seated. And let me just pray uh, briefly as we begin. Jesus, thank you for teaching in a way that we can understand. Thank you for employing stories that are relatable to those in the first century and to us today. I pray for a spirit of understanding and receptiveness today. We want to woman up and be women of God who don't just know the truth and even memorize the truth or see the truth and hear it, but who actually believe it and walk out of here determined to live it. Father, I pray a blessing over each woman who is here today. I pray that you would give us hearts and minds that are open to what the text says, but also, Holy Spirit, that you would stir up our hearts for a takeaway. That each of us would leave here having been pushed or prodded or challenged by your Holy Spirit with an assignment to live out the truth that we are receiving Thank you for who you are. Thank you for the freedom we have in this country to study your word, to own our own Bibles. And I just pray your blessing over this time here today. Offer your glory and all in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so when we think about this particular parable, the story that Jesus told, there are some key characters and key elements in the story that we can identify. The master, the servants, one of the servants is deemed the chief servant, and then, of course, the food. There's other possessions mentioned, but specifically the food that we're going to tie into. The natural part of this story is simply a household waiting for their master to return. The master has left them in charge, and he's gone away. The head servant is given a key responsibility. He is to oversee all the master's possessions in his absence. He's to oversee all the other servants. And he's also charged with ensuring that those servants are well cared for and specifically that they are fed. So as Jesus unfolds the story, he also compares and contrasts the behavior of the faithful and wise servant to that of what a wicked servant would do. So because the master has stayed away a long time, the foolish servant we see became a little lazy. He became a little complacent. He began to play fast and loose with the master's possessions. He began to not do his job. And he began to party and carouse and to even mistreat his fellow servants. His wicked behavior on the outside actually stemmed from what he believed or failed to believe on the inside. Jesus said, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and, an, and, an, and at an hour he is not aware of. The wicked servant failed to expect the master to return. And when he began to doubt the master's return, it completely changed his behavior. The characters in the parable have application to not only first century believers, but to us today as well. So we try to apply who these characters are, and, and the symbolism that we see, the master, of course, is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the one whose, returns we, his, whose return we, his servants, are awaiting. The servants in the household awaiting his return represent the body of believers, the family of God, and that's us. The chief servant represents leaders and pastors and teachers and those in different authority positions over us. We looked at scripture this week in our, in our study and we identified some of those. And of course the food, the food is the word of God. 
The food is the word of God. We, we are hungry for this. This is our feast and our banquet. So before, though, we hasten to conclude that, well, does this really have any application to us? I don't need to be warned about this because none of us in this room are pastors. None of us are elders. And, and before you say, breathe a sigh of relief, boy, I'm glad I didn't agree to teach VBS last summer because then I would have been a teacher and maybe I would have been a, held accountable. So therefore, I'm off the hook. Well, ladies, I want to make the case to you that all of us wear multiple hats, that in one way or another, every single one of us at some time is also a chief servant. We are also a leader in one way or another. Depending on the relationship and the role, we may be servants, and, and often we are the servants. We're all part of the family of God if our identity is with the Lord Jesus Christ. But every single one of you, in some way, is also a chief servant. Clearly, we're all members of the household of God. But I believe that in our friendships, in our family dynamics, in our church and, and ministry roles, all of us, at one time or another, Take on that role as chief servant. It may be formal or informal, but every single one of us is in a position to influence others. We are mothers. We are sisters. We are friends. And in all those different relationships, at one time or another, we're called upon, we're asked to render advice, to set an example, to teach by our words and our actions and even our attitudes. And the food that we are to feed those under our authority or those that we influence should be the milk and eventually the meat of the word of God. The challenge to the servant left in charge is to be faithful, to be faithful, to behave in the master's absence as he or she would in his presence. So since the food is the word of God, the feeding we do is actually teaching. And so we are prompted to ask ourselves, some very key questions as we think about this parable and about the food being the teaching of the word of God. And so I just want to ask you to sort of think to yourself, who am I teaching or who am I influencing? And how am I teaching or influencing? And what am I teaching? Or, and, and, and when am I teaching? And maybe it's even in line at Walmart. Yeah, um, where, where am I teaching? Why am I teaching? If Jesus were here among us, would we or how would we alter our behavior? But, you know, he really is here among us, right? He, he, he lives inside each of us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Do we treat our fellow servants in a way that spurs them on to know and follow Jesus? Fellow servants are fellow members of the family of God. Do we tell them one thing and then do something different ourselves? So as you ask yourselves these questions, I want to challenge you to ask Jesus to help you answer them. Does my talk match my walk? Does my behavior line up with my belief? Am I modeling by my actions and my behavior the truth that I purport to believe? So um, as we think about this parable and the call that Jesus made, he, we saw two little challenges in the text. To keep watch and to be ready. Jesus said. So remember, Jesus is speaking to the church here. He's speaking to the family of God, to the household of God. So when he returns, we as believers, we're not going to face judgment for our sin. That's already been covered by the cross of Jesus Christ. There's no worries about our destiny for eternity because that's all been paid for already. That's a done deal. Don't let the enemy condemn you or dredge up that old stuff to, to, to point a finger at you or tell you you are less. 
it's all gone as far as the east is from the west. If your identity is in Christ, your salvation is assured. It's a done deal. Your destiny for eternity is settled. But we will face a judgment for our works. Rewards will be given out based upon our works. I love what Warren Wearsby, one of my favorite Bible scholars, says. He says, while everyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior is going to heaven, and we all say amen to that, everyone who has trusted Jesus Christ as Savior is going to heaven, not every believer is ready to meet the Lord because of this judgment that will come based upon our works. So our failure to keep watch and be ready could result in the loss of rewards in heaven and lost opportunities on earth. So we're going to spend some time today unpacking what it means to keep watch and to be ready, specifically as it relates to the Word of God, the food Jesus expects his leaders, his influencers, to provide to others in the world. What I'm going to do today is highlight a few key passages that address the Word of God. And I'm hoping that you might jot down some of these references and, and, and then take some time later to, to, or make some time to review the verses, to read over them, to pray over each one. The Lord may challenge you to commit some of these to memory, but I want you to study them more thoroughly. Some of them may be familiar and some of them may be new, but I'm praying that the Holy Spirit prompts you to receive this truth and to perhaps even commit it to memory. We're going to start off in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. It says this, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. You know, I think that this tells us that it's time for many in the body of Christ to grow up. To move on from getting their spiritual nourishment from a spiritual sippy cup. And ask, where's the beef? You know, are, are, are we satisfied with milk? Have we been drinking milk our whole spiritual life? And it's time to crave some meat. I think, ladies, that the fact that you have planted yourself here in our Bible study, that you are choosing to commit yourself to the study of God's Word, means that you are craving some meat in your spiritual diet. And I want to commend you for that. One of the greatest challenges, I believe, as I, as I pray for the church, and I pray for the advancement of the kingdom, I think one of the greatest reasons, if not the greatest reason, that we are not seeing revival and, the gro and growth in the kingdom is that is due to biblical illiteracy. When the people of God begin to crave the meat of the word of God and allow the spirit of God to stir up their hearts to love it and to live it, I'm convinced we're going to take back some holy ground. I'm convinced that we will begin to see revival in our land. But we can't just keep pointing a finger at social media or the unbelievers or whoever else out there. We shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers behave like unbelievers. Bless woman up and man up and behave as the people of God that we are. We have the light and the truth of Scripture. So here's, here's what I want. I want to see revival in my lifetime. I want to see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So let's pray that God makes us hungry for the meat and, and he does it for all of the body of Christ. That he leaves us dissatisfied with only milk. That, and let's encourage one another to grow up. And note the benefits of being in the Word. 
According to this passage, if you are a woman of the word, a man or woman of the word of God, you're able to distinguish good from evil. Have we lost some of that distinction? Are there people that claim to be Christians that have a difficult time discerning good from evil? And perhaps it's because they're not seeing life and circumstances and things they're trying to discern through the lens of Scripture. Have you and have I lost some of that distinction? We need to ask Jesus to reveal it to us. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. That's 2 Timothy 2.15. If we are women of the word who correctly handle the word of truth, the Bible will be, will be found, the truth will be found, we'll be knowing it, living it, we'll be teaching it uh, with gentleness and by example. Our, our Bible is not a hammer to beat somebody over the head with. We will we will, um, we'll never be prompted by pride just to make our opinions known or to make ourselves feel superior. We will share it with gentleness and with humility and with respect. Do we handle the truth correctly? And if so, then there will be no shame for us when our master returns. We will be found faithful. 2 Peter 2.2 Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the truth into disrepute. Disrepute, according to Mr. Webster, is the lack or decline of good reputation, a state of being held in low esteem. Does that sound like what the world and social media and non-believers think of Christianity? As women of God, we have the responsibility and the privilege to not only know the truth, but to choose to live the truth. It's got to work its way out of our minds and our hearts and into our behavior and our attitudes, our words and our actions. Our lives impact the reputation of biblical truth to the world. We know what is right when we study the word of God, but then we have to choose to live out what is right. 2 Timothy 3, 15 to 17 says this about the word of God. All scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God. It comes from God himself. And it's useful. Useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the man of God, or we might say the woman of God, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I love finding a so that in scripture. Now you know he's God Almighty and he can just tell us what we need to do, just like you're the mama and you can tell to your kid, you can say to your kiddos, because I'm the mama, that's why. But sometimes getting a so that makes it easier to receive it and live it. So God gives us a so that here. The word of God teaches, rebukes, corrects, trains us so that we can be equipped to do the good works that he has for us. And 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 this is this, is, this does not save us. Remember, we're not addressing salvation here, but our usefulness for the kingdom, our rewards in heaven, and even our satisfaction on earth. If, if you feel like life is kind of dreary and black and white and drab, then maybe you're not leaning into your purpose. That's why you're not finding satisfaction. I love what John Piper said, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Are you trying to find some satisfaction apart from living as the holy, redeemed, righteous woman of God that you are? You know, I don't want to miss anything that God has for me. I, I, I want to run up to the plate and grab that bat and swing hard and round the bases every single time he calls me out of the dugout. Every single time. 
I want to slide into the home plate of heaven completely exhausted and spent and depleted and used up all for his glory. And I believe you do too. And I believe that being ready for all those opportunities stems from being a woman of the word. Scripture is what prepares you and me, thoroughly equips us for the work that he has for us. I wonder, do you have a life verse? A verse that just seems to succinctly and aptly describe God's call on your life? I want to share with you mine. Came across this years ago, and it was almost like it was in neon lights in my Bible. I just knew that God was saying, this is for you, Laura. This is for you. My life verse is, let the word of God dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. This tells us that if our desire is to teach, and according to the parable that we're looking at, that with the faithful servant, all of us at one point or another are called upon to teach in one way or another. If we want to teach well, if we want to admonish one another well, if we want to do all that with wisdom, then God's word absolutely must dwell in us. Now, admonish, that's a big kind of churchy word. I want to give you the definition. To warn or reprimand, to advise or to urge. Well, we mommies, if we are good mommies, are also sometimes mean mommies in the sense that we discipline our children and do a little admonishing. And if we're really that good mommy who's sometimes a mean mommy, then we're not always concerned with making sure that our kids hear what they want to hear or allowing them to always do what they want to do. But we admonish with the wisdom of God's word. They don't always have to feel like they're our friend. We can be their friend when they grow up um, or not. But we need to love them well and discipline them well and admonish them when they need it. And we can do that because God's word dwells in us richly. Not scarcely or barely or poorly, but richly. That means overflowing, abundantly. And look at that word dwell. God's word dwells in us. Do you know what your dwelling is? It's where you live. It's your address. It's where you call home. So I ask you, what is your attitude towards God's word? Are, are you dwelling in it? Or do you camp out with God's word once in a while? Do you pay weekend visitation to God's word? Or are you dwelling there, living there, day in and day out? Do you want to? Would you make it your prayer going forward to make that your identity? Regardless of your attitude towards God's word in the past, today is the day. It's a new day. It's a new year. It's a new decade. And we can all covenant together and declare that going forward, God's word is going to dwell in me richly because I'm going to rely on the truth of scripture as I teach and admonish in all my relationships. I'm going to do this because I am expecting because I am believing that God is returning. And when my master comes back, I'm going to be found faithful at my post. I'm going to be found living out my responsibilities because I believe he's coming back. Because I trust that he's coming back. Because I'm expecting him to be coming back. So here's your truth. Every week, for those of you who are new, we're going to have a woman of God's truth. And here's the one for now. The woman of God dwells in the word of God. Jesus said, keep watch, be ready. And the best way to do that 
is to immerse ourselves in the word of God. That's the best preparation possible for being the faithful servant. That translates into being a faithful wife, sister, mother, daughter, friend, Sunday school teacher, or wanna leader, small group leader, neighbor, fellow shopper. Do you realize you even influence the people you're in line with at the grocery store? You're a, good, you're a different customer. You talk different to that difficult person at the customer service desk even. Every interaction in the course of your day is an opportunity for you to be that faithful servant. When you respond to a request for advice, when you respond to an angry or mean person, when you are called upon to discipline a child or have a challenging conversation with your husband or your brother or your sister or your mother's caregiver or, or, or your friend, your answer, your advice, your response, your demeanor, all of that is really a way of feeding the people in your world. Just as the servant was entrusted with the responsibility to feed the other servants in the absence of the master. Now, you can't feed anybody well if you're starving to death yourself. You've heard the, you've probably all been on an airplane at some point in your life, or you've, you've heard what the flight attendant says, and I've, I've been on several airplane trips in the last year. But always, 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 the flight attendant gives you the advice that in the event of cabin depressurization, the mask will come down, and they always say, put it on your face first, and then help the children or, or those that need help traveling with you. But you've got to put it on yourself first. You've got to make sure you don't pass out so that you can help everybody with you. And so it's the same analogy. You can't give others what you don't have. If you're flying southwest, they always tell you, too, Put it on your face first, and then if you have more than one child traveling with you, put it on the child you like best first. <laughs> you can always count on Southwest for a good laugh. But anyway, the point works the same, whether it's the oxygen mask or feeding ourselves. Feed yourself first so you are ready to pour into other people. Be ready. Keep watch. Be faithful by being filled up with the Word of God, by dwelling in the Word of God. Okay, I want to wrap up with some practical questions to consider for self-assessment as you evaluate your readiness and your watchfulness as related to the Word of God preparedness. Okay, so here are 10 questions to ponder. And you can take a picture of these later or catch it later on YouTube, but just try to lean in and listen with me for now. When asked to give advice, do I refer to the Word of God? Am I quoting a self-help book or what I think, or am I quoting the Word of God for the advice I give? When a, a, a friend of mine recently shared on this topic, I, I was thinking about this, shared about a conversation she had with her granddaughter recently. And this little teenage girl was having her first crush and her first love interest. And this grandma, in a very loving but, but non-confrontational way, had the guts to ask, well, does he love God? And her granddaughter said, oh, grandma, this isn't a serious thing. Uh, you know, I, it, it's not going to place it. It's just a, a, a little in my first interest. Well, Grandma was wise to point out that every serious thing most likely begins as a non-serious thing. And so she planted that seed in her granddaughter's heart and mind that that's a consideration, even if you don't think it's a serious thing to consider. Where does he stand with God? So I say, go, Grandma. We need to have those hard conversations. We need to plant those seeds when we can and take advantage of those opportunities. Number two, when a heavy decision weighs on me, do I consult the Word of God? Is the Word of God your go-to before you put something out on Facebook or run to Barnes & Noble to the self-help section or start Googling for the answer? Number three, 
When I am insulted or offended or angered, do I take time to pray and consult the Word of God? I have another friend who saw something on social media recently and that angered her, and, and her first knee-jerk response was just to confront and to get on Facebook and type a response because the comment was a bit passive-aggressive and it, it wasn't totally true in, in the way the circumstance was relayed. But my friend instead heeded the, the prompting of the Holy Spirit. She took a little time to wait and to pray, and the Holy, Holy Spirit led her instead to reach out with a private message instead of making a public post to this person. And the relationship was spared and even strengthened. You know, Satan loves social media because we can, in our anger, just put something out there. The evil one wants to steal and kill and destroy our relationships. But when we listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and the words of Scripture, we learn what it says in Proverbs, that a soft answer turns away wrath. And we learn what Peter wrote in, in his book in the New Testament, that love covers over a multitude of sins. Number four, am I expecting that in 2020 I will be insulted, offended, or angered? And if so, how can I be ready? Now, if anybody here is not expecting anything to happen in 2020 that is going to raise your blood pressure, I would say that you are either naive or you are packing your bags to move to a desert island and live alone. Because it's probably going to happen. At some point during this year, someone is going to piss your buttons. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 27, 12, The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and suffer for it. We buy insurance in case there's a fire or a car wreck, hoping it won't happen. But we buy insurance to protect us. So why not have a plan for being insulted or angered or offended and just ask the Lord to give you a verse or that you're going to run to when that happens in 2020 and just be ready. Number five, how does my social media interaction prove me a wise or unwise servant? Go back and look at what you've posted or tweeted or, or whatever and just read those as if you were a third party looking on and ask if there's anything there that is redemptive or kind or gentle or uplifting that anyone that doesn't know you could read and know whether or not you are a woman of God or a woman of the word. Number six, am I intentional with my children, even adult children and grandchildren, to pray with them and for them? To just grab them as they're getting ready to leave, to go back to college, to go back home. Here, let me just pray for you before you leave. In a restaurant, let me just pray for us before we eat. Just to begin to model that and, and, and pray for them. Am I strategic to share the word of God with them? I have a friend who's a great gift giver. In fact, she could be a professional gift shopper because she's so good and thoughtful and knowing at just what someone else needs and when they need it. She's thoughtful and generous with her friends and her family. This year, she was also very strategic with her gift giving because she gave not just lovely gifts that her children would love, but she gave all of them a devotional book. So how can we honor God even with our birthday and Christmas budget as we make choices about what we're going to give those that we love? I thought that was just a brilliant idea. Number eight, what music do I listen to? What books am I reading? Does that reflect that I'm dwelling in the Word of God? Number nine, if I knew Jesus was coming tonight at 9 p.m., would it change what's on my TV at 9 p.m.? Number ten, how can I leverage my poor choices and missed opportunities in the past to make more godly, biblically-based choices in my future. That's called redemption. That's called God taking beauty from ashes. All those things that happened in the past can't be changed 
But oh my, how God can take those in his amazing, exceedingly, abundantly wonderful way and transform those into better decisions to pour into other people to speak truth over, over them. The Christian life is one of continual transformation, change, and growth, or it should be. So I want to challenge you, if there are those things that even thinking about it makes your face grow red now, or makes you feel shame, or makes you feel less when God believes you to be more, know that God has forgiven you if you've asked him to. But please forgive yourself, receive God's forgiveness, and move on. Today is a new day, it's a new year, it's a new decade. Learn from your past, but let it go. And don't give the enemy any ground. Don't let him condemn you for what Jesus has already covered by his blood. When someone says to me, oh, he's not the man I married, my response is always, well, I hope not. And I hope you're not the woman he married either. Because the reality is that each and every one of us should be knowing God better and loving him more. We should be different today than we were 20 or 30 years ago or a year ago or six months ago or even last week because we are continually being molded and changed and transformed, more intentionally choosing to be that faithful servant, nurturing those in our world as we await, await the return of our master. May all of us choose in 2020 to be expecting. No, I'm not suggesting that everyone run out and get pregnant in <laughs> 2020. Please don't tell my mama V I said the word pregnant. She would, she's in heaven now, but... When you get there, don't tell her. <laughs> but what I mean is that we live expecting because we live watching and waiting for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's coming back. We're all expecting that. So as women of God, let's choose to keep watch and let's choose to be ready and let's choose to do that by dwelling in the word of God. Pray with me. Jesus, you're coming back and we are grateful for that. Let that reality change what we think and what we do and how we behave. Thank you for leaving us with your word. Thank you for allowing the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Jesus, we're expecting you. Let us live like we're expecting you. Let us live keeping watch and choosing to be ready. Offer your glory. In your name I pray. Amen. Have a great week, ladies. Thanks for being here.